Dotnet Rocks episode 846 with guest Yen Trey. Recorded live Monday, February 11th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard and a whole pile of snow here still piled up at New London. Still digging out, huh? Yeah, still digging out. You know, this is the third storm uh, that I have missed because I've been traveling, much to the chagrin of my wife, right, who's right. had to shovel we our the driveway. Day of .NET on the weekend. Yeah, she she posted me the view, you know, of our driveway complete and our cars completely covered. And uh, I made the mistake of publishing that to Facebook, saying. This is what I'm missing as I eat my Mexican food in 75-degree Dallas weather, which brought out the wrath of her mother and sisters uh, who all ganged up on me and said, payback's a bitch, (laughs) y'all. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you showed me those pictures. It was an epic amount of snow. Your car was buried. Buried, yeah. Two feet. Two feet of snow. Two feet of snow on top of your car. Well, let's get started with Better Know Framework. All right, what do you got? And you know what else is funny is that we bought a pellet stove. Oh, yeah. Because we knew it was, you, you know, we want to save some money. If you want to save money on oil heat, get a pellet stove. And it's great. Pellets are cheap, and uh, it's probably the cheapest way you can heat your home. So the problem is we had some guys come to install it, and they looked and said, oh, you need an insert for your chimney. You know, this is the house we've only been in for two years. Right. So, uh, okay, we'll go ahead and do that. Oh, well, we can't do that when there's snow on the roof. <laughs> you mean when I would need it? When I need it, I can't have it. Yeah. Uh, you know, first world problems. All right. Uh, so, in, in honor of our guest today, uh, many F-sharp developers probably know about this. Some may not. But if you go to fsharppowerpack.codeplex.com, you'll find the F-sharp powerpack with F-sharp compiler source drops. Cool. This is a collection of extra libraries and tools for the F-sharp programming language. And also, it's the staging point for the open source code drops of the F-sharp compiler and core library under the OSS-approved Apache 2.0 license. Nice. Yeah. So this is, you know, new improvements to F-sharp, uh, plus uh, a whole bunch of extra tools. So go get it. It's at F-sharp, don't, you know, spell out the word sharp, don't use the pound sign, fsharppowerpack.codeplex.com. Know it, learn it, love it. Richard, who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 813, and that is the one we did on the road trip in Boston with Don Sign and Keith Bellacci. And uh, this, we, of course, talked about F-sharp. And this comment comes from Dominic Finn, who says, Having just been to Progressive F-Sharp in London this month, I am still buzzing about the language. As mentioned in the podcast, I would really reiterate the need to look at type providers. They are ridiculously good. A good place to start is by using NuGet to get the F-Sharp X type providers at tinyurl.com slash F-Sharp X. You can be up and running in moments. Another cool place I have found for F-Sharp is helping with domain modeling. If you have a lot of simple POCO objects in your domain or use large quantities of view models, why not get rid of the complexity? Your entire domain can fit into one F-Sharp file and be visible without scrolling. Which really speaks to how dense F-Sharp code is. It's very much like a domain-specific language. Yeah. So, Dominic, thanks so much for your comments. We totally agree. F-Sharp is ridiculously cool, and type providers are even cooler. So a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com. And while you were reading that, I tinyurlized the video on YouTube of that Don Syme, Keith Bertacci interview. tinyurl.com slash DNR Don Syme, S-Y-M-E. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. 
They have over 400 hardcore developer training courses offered by MVPs and industry experts, such as those that appear on our show. They release 12 to 15 new courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes of access. Pluralsight offers a wide range of developer training courses, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack, including a course on F-Sharp by Oliver Sturm. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let me introduce our guest. Jan Trey is a UK-based developer building social games for millions of active players, where he works closely with cloud computing platforms and a polyglot stack, including F-Sharp and C-Sharp. Jan is also a regular speaker and blogger on topics such as AOP, NoSQL, and F-Sharp. Welcome, Jan. Hey, guys. Good to be here. Good to have you. And we, we had you on the show because you've had some remarkable success uh, doing games in this platform. And when I say remarkable, tell us about your successes. Uh, sure. So um, I work for a company called Gamesys. And as a company, Gamesys is one of the market leaders in the field of play-to-play uh, gaming sites. But Gamesys is not just a gambling company. Uh, my team, for instance, we focus on building freemium model social games that run on social platforms such as Facebook. And we have built a wide range of different games from SimCity style city builders, slots games, as well as a mid-core MNORPG that's uh, based around the real world places and uh, monsters from the real folklore from uh, different regions. and Here be monsters. <laughs> yeah, check it out. Yeah, And uh, our biggest games right now in terms of uh, active user base uh, um, do happen to be our two slots games, Jopper Joy Slot and uh, Lucky Jam Casino. The latter of which is a joint venture with uh, PopCap, the maker of popular hits such as Plants vs. Zombies and Bejeweled. And between the two games, we are seeing around 700,000 unique users each day. And between them, they generate somewhere in the region of 150 million requests a day. So there's quite a lot of traffic there. Wow. And the games are doing fantastically well financially for us. And they're both amongst the top grossing apps on Facebook. And off the back of these two games, we've managed to grow our team from a size of around 12 people 18 months ago to now closer to 80. Jeepers. So we've gone through a, a, an incredible journey in the last year and a half. And now all of a sudden we are building four games at the same time. We've just launched two new games uh, the, this month. And uh, having uh, been employee number six in the team, it's just been a, a quite inc- incredible journey for me. And how much, and, has, how much of a role has F-Sharp played in, in your success? Um, okay, let me talk a little bit more about sort of our use of uh, F-Sharp. So uh, for me, I think F-Sharp is a superb language, language for uh, general purpose programming, even more so than C-Sharp in many cases. But there are several areas where we have identified as particular good fits to start integrating F-Sharp into our code base. Mm. And for our slots games, um, for every slots game, we have uh, a very tight release schedule. And uh, every two weeks, we release a new slot machine. And because each slot machine offers something slightly different, be it a different uh, payout model mechanics or a different bonus game, so they all require some custom code. And a bit of history on the, on the games is, so the, the company has been around for about a decade, and all the pay-to-play games are powered by a Java-based implementation for a slot engine. You said pay-to-play, right? Yep. So these guys are under financial regulation, very strict regulations. Right. So they... They, they don't move uh, quite as fast and, and uh, they, don't, they, they can't move quite as fast and take as much risk as we can on the social side. And for the Java platform, it usually takes the developer maybe three to four days to develop uh, a new slot machine. Mm-hmm. But we needed to move faster because we have a one-week sprint on each of our slot game uh, applications. Mm. And uh, we needed to be able to do things that potentially are not suitable for the pay-to-play side of the business. Right. So some time ago, we decided to write our own slot engine. That's when I realized that uh, this is such a good fit for F-Sharp. And I've been play- by then, I've been playing around with F-Sharp for, I guess, over a year now in my spare time. And I've really come to love the expressiveness of the language and the terse syntax you get and just how much faster you can just you know, do things in F-Sharp compared to, say, in C-Sharp. And for this particular workflow where... You have a slot machine, there's a maths model behind it, there's some game rules that need to be enforced, some logic that controls uh, ultimately how likely the player is able to win with different symbols on the reels, and more importantly, the RTP number. Mm. 
which is a return to player ratio, is the percentage of the player's wager which are returned to them over the long term. Right. And the FGI research is a great fit here because most of the time I'm just going to be writing simple algorithms and transforming data from one shape to another by several stages of transformation and aggregation, which is not too dissimilar from your average map-reduced workflow. And in this case, the functional approach in general is preferable as you tend to have fewer data structures with more operations and the intermediate stages of the data transformation can be represented as simple tuples. Yeah. And functional languages such as F-sharp offers a very good pattern matching capabilities for working with data structures such as tuples and linked lists. Right. Now, this frees you up from having to define many, many types uh, with little reusability upfront and the many rounds of modification thereafter whenever you realize, okay, I don't have uh, this piece of data, so I need to add another property to my type. And coupled with F-sharp's uh, terse syntax means that you can get a lot more done in a shorter time. And you can actually say with F-sharp, you can actually say a lot more with fewer words or fewer lines of code. Yeah. So you're just stashing your data inside of a tuple because you, so you don't need to modify your data structures or your parameters or anything like that. That's right. And considering that you have, you, quite, you can quite easily have a, a, a function that takes some data in some shape, goes through maybe five, six, seven stages of transformation, and at the end of it, return data in a different shape. Now, if you use the so overall approach upfront, then you're going to end up defining seven types off the back of that. And uh, it just means you have to do a lot more work just to get there. Whereas with the functional approach, uh, you forfeit all the unnecessary uh, type definitions. Have you had experience with, obviously it sounds like you had, with other uh, functional languages before you landed with F-sharp? And, and I, I take it that your choice of F-sharp was because you were doing things in .NET with C-sharp. It just made it easier. Uh, that's right. The choice mainly is because we already uh, are using the .NET platform. So on the server side where I work, um, it's mostly C-sharp code. Uh, now we are uh, adopting F-sharp more and more into our code base, but we also uh, have uh, some some uh, some components that are written in Python and runs from a Google App Engine, mm. whereas the game services are run from Amazon EC2 entirely. I've uh, spent a lot of time with uh, other languages like uh, Erlang and less so with Scala and Clojure, uh, but obviously if you adopt Erlang, then there's a whole different um, so, so beats there to, in terms of interrupting with your um, other services that you're running uh, in .NET. So F-sharp was the natural sort of choice there, uh, except for C-sharp. But with C-sharp, I, I don't think I would have managed to get the kind of productivity boost I get by using F-sharp. How does the uh, pattern matching stack up in F-sharp versus Erlang? Quite similar, actually. You, you find that the pattern matching in the, a lot of the languages, uh, including Erlang and Scala, they're all quite similar. You can quite easily just define the variable they want to bind the individual items of a tuple to on the left-hand side, and on the right-hand side, you just have the tuple itself. And pattern matching allows you to decompose this, uh, the, the tuple on the right-hand side by structure and fit individual items into the variables that you have, the, you have on the left-hand side of the uh, assignment. So it's really, really easy to work with. Um, it's nothing like what you get in the C sharp where you have used dot item one, dot item two, mm. which pretty ugly. Yeah. Now we are talking about a, a slot machine. So is there really much information to carry forward? Isn't every pull of the wheel different? Uh, not necessarily. So some of the slot machines, some of the uh, machines are like that, but others are stateful. So the state for the pairs, uh, you know, current spin have to be persisted somewhere. Mm -hmm. And the next time they spin, for instance, if they gain to a bonus round where they get, say, 10 free spins, then every time they make a free spin, then we have to remember that, okay, you've got nine left, you've got eight left, this is your total aggregate win for the free spin rounds, and so on and so forth. And we actually made some um, rather complex um, uh, slot machines. Um, one of them is uh, based around the Monopoly game. So when you go bonus game so in the main game you would spin your reels and occasionally you have these uh, uh, special symbols coming off the reels like a house or um, a utility company or a railroad and when you hit the bonus game combination that brings you onto a board like your standard uh, monopoly board and then you can use the item that you have collected from the main game place them on the board 
And when you land on, say, a, a property square where you've got four houses, that will actually quadruple your winning. Uh, in the bonus game and as you play in the bonus game every time you, you're not just spinning the reels you're spinning a dice at the same time mm-hmm. based on the outcome mr monopoly will move around the board until until he ends up on the go to jail square in which case uh, he might get or you, you might terminate the bonus game unless you are lucky and got the get out of jail free cards from the community chest or the chance chest so some of the some of the slot machines are not your sort of stand, standard typical uh, simple slot machines. Every spin is unique. There are some of them are actually very very complex and very uh, with a very um, sophisticated math model behind it to ensure the RTP numbers are correct. Because we don't want to release a slot into production that would just sync up people's coin balance, and we don't want people to make so much of money off a slot machine that uh, we end up losing. And yeah. of Simple slow machine, the, where we, where it would take a Java developer on the Java uh, platform, maybe three to four days to implement. It takes me somewhere in between two and four hours. And only, even for the more complex games, it's been taking a matter of days as opposed to weeks. And all of this is done initially uh, as a prototype from scratch uh, to the first playable, I guess, prototype in under the week. And we released our first game running on our F-Sharp engine, I think, two or three weeks later, by which time I've already written the whole engine about three times because mm-hmm. I had to okay. engineer uh, what's been done on the driver side without any documentation. I just have a look at the HTTP request response and then work out all the bits in the middle. And then as I find out, uh, some of my assumptions was incorrect in the first place. Um, I had to redo a lot of the work I've done already. But surprisingly, it was... Uh, a lot easier than I thought, just ripping everything out and replacing them because I don't have all these type definitions I have to keep changing. It's really just the gut, the, the algorithms that I need to change, which is, uh, that's, which is why I, I was able to move so fast. And it's a very nice thing. Uh, but actually, back to the, uh, the, the point about delivery, uh, as I said earlier, each of the games have got a one-week spring cycle and the new slot machines released every two weeks for the last, I guess, year and a half now. And we need to continue to do so because our players have come to expect something new every fortnight. And we still have to keep delivering other features and improvements to our systems as a whole. So one of the things we wanted to avoid was to have to have the developers um, meddle with the configurations and math model for the slots. So with the, our slots engine, all the slot machines, the configuration is uh, in F-sharp code. But they're so human and readable, this is written almost like a simple DSL using plain English that we're able to just give them to the mathematicians who work closely with the math model, but know very little programming. And for them to work with it, and once they're happy with the configuration, there's a simple F-sharp script that they can run from batch uh, from a batch file that we run simulation against the slot engine implementation by building the slot code while the machine code first and then run simulations for say a million spins and then outcome and output the relevant numbers so that they can easily spot any bugs either in their math model or in our implementation of the model. Oh yeah, I was going to ask that question. Uh, When you try out this new game, you've got to make sure that it maintains a sort of stable balance. It's not too generous or too stingy. That's right. And uh, the simulation is our first sort of, uh, stop, uh, for our first I guess, guarantee that we are doing so- we're not doing something crazy. But we also take uh, analytics very seriously. Everything the ge- uh, players do in any of our games are tracked as events and uh, analyzed. So based on the production data, we can also see the performance of each of the slots as well as any changes over, say, a period of weeks that maybe a slot is time to perform differently after release, then you know, we can, we can uh, see, okay, something's wrong there. And uh, we can also compare uh, the performance of all our slots and see which ones are more popular with uh, different players. We also do a lot of A-B testing by uh, tweaking the game slightly differently, maybe with a different payment screen or a different uh, welcome screen to different players, and then see which one uh, retains players better compared to the other. And then we shift everyone to the, the, the more performant um, uh, configuration. How does the scrutiny that you program under manifest itself? Like, I, I imagine, you know, my fantasies, like the federales come in with their sunglasses and dark suits, and, you know, they look over your shoulder while you're writing code, but... 
obviously <laughs> you can't get anything done like that. What what's the um what what are the kind of routine things that you have to do to so that everybody knows the code is on the up and up? Uh, fortunately, on our side, because we don't we are not really under um, very much scrutiny at all in terms of uh, regulations, so we have a lot of freedom to introduce uh, features and potentially uh, breaking changes as we like. Um, but all of that is driven by analytics, so the whole analytics pipeline. Uh, and well determines what features are working and which ones are not. Then we do more of the things that the players like, and uh, you know, over that uh, over iterations that uh, continues to make changes based on analytics, and then uh, uh, collect more analytics, and then make changes based on those analytics again. Well, surely there are people that are watching the outcome then, uh, yeah. that just to make sure that the ratio of of uh, you know the money paid out on slot machines, for example, is is on the up and up. And to be clear here, you're playing on Facebook. You're just playing for tokens, not for real money. It's freemium. So every day you have a, a number of a certain amount of coins that you can play with. Right. And every two weeks, uh, sorry, every two hours, you can you can collect more free coins to play to keep playing. Right. But if you don't want to wait, and you can spend some. Say 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 two dollars for another for enough uh, balance to keep playing for the next uh, hour and a half or two hours or if you're really lucky you just keep playing for the rest of the day. Okay, if well, hit- I thought I thought you were uh, talking about that you had some slot machine uh, apps that were actually pay to play. That's on the different side of the business, but for me and uh, my team, we work just on the freemium social uh, games. Okay. And it's not so much buying coins as it is can I cash out? That's the real oh, issue. You can't cash out, so it's not gambling. Right. It's it's uh, it's entertainment. Another area actually uh, that we are making very good use of F sharp for, and where you know, F sharp is just superb, uh, is the use of F sharp for implementing components which have a high concurrency requirement, because F sharp has the mailbox processor type. Uh, the mailbox uh, processor is the implementation of the actor model, actor-based programming model, and there's actually a very good video of a conversation between Eric Meyer and Carl Hewitt, the father of the actor model, on the topic uh, on Channel Nine, which I strongly, strongly recommend watching. So, in the actor model, everything is an actor, and uh, an actor has got a mailbox which he can receive messages from asynchronously. The outside world can post messages to the actor's mailbox, asynchronously as well. And actors, they share nothing. So they don't have any shared memory. And they, the only way they can communicate with the outside world is via messaging to and from each other's uh, mailboxes. And messages are delivered to an actor uh, one at a time so that internally to an actor, everything is synchronous and single-threaded, which means that there's no need for the use of synchronization to make sure that uh, you don't have any concurrency issues or race conditions. So using a mailbox process in F-sharp, you can now write highly concurrent uh, applications without using logs at all. Uh, If you use the agent, if you use the mailbox processor to control any resources that would have required locking, to make sure that um, you don't have uh, race conditions. Right. Okay. And when an agent receives a message, he can do some processing on the message and send a reply if one is expected and then continue to wait for the next message to arrive by blocking asynchronously. This is very important because um, if you block a thread while waiting for a message to arrive, then you're wasting very valuable resources. And on the server side, uh, threads are like gold dust. Right. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems, all of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources 
such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Yeah, why do they call it the mailbox model? Uh, because it takes after the mailbox uh, uh, design pattern. Okay. And it's, uh, and it's a processor that uh, processes messages uh, from, a, from a mailbox. The name doesn't really stuck. Uh, everybody calls it agent. Just right. about every project I look at that, has, that uses mailbox processor, the first thing you see is a type alias who use an agent instead. <laughs> so it's the idea that you pass a message to the mailbox or the agent, and then it goes off and does its own thing. You've got a nice separation of concerns there. Right. You're breaking yep. down a process asynchronously. Asynchronously, and also that means uh, you don't have. So if you've got something uh, like a dictionary or any kind of collection that you want to control, you don't want to have uh, race conditions, then you don't need to use logs ever. You just uh, let the agent itself controls the data structure, and anything, anytime anybody wants to modify the data structure or read something from it, they have to do it by messaging. So within the uh, within the processor code, it's all synchronous and single threaded. So there's no need for logs. Right. At all, so for for example, in our particular use case, um, we take monitoring very seriously, and we track just about everything. We track the execution time and count for every method that performs I/O or is a service entry point, or even methods that have to do CPU intensive work. And these metrics are gathered and aggregated on a per server basis, and periodically pushed to Amazon CloudWatch service which aggregates the metrics further across all of our servers so that we can have a pseudo real-time view of how many times the method has been called, the average, mean, and max execution time across hundreds of servers that we run during peak time for anything that we deem worth monitoring. Because uh, this is done using post-sharp attributes, it means we just have to write the, uh, the code once and multicast it to any methods uh, that, need, that meet our criteria. The problem comes with the component that needs to aggregate the metrics on the per-server basis uh, because the metrics need to be aggregated on a minute-by-minute minute basis because that's the um, smallest period that mm -hmm. Amazon CloudWatch works with. So you can imagine having a dictionary where the key is the daytime representing the current minute. And then for each key, you have another dictionary where you have that's key to a metric name as well as the data points for that particular metric inside this minute. Now, imagine if uh, you have uh, uh, this, this, uh, this component having to be called uh, thousands of times, maybe even sometimes tens of thousands of times a second from as many threads as we have running at a time. And if you use the logs, and this is going to add a lot of complexity as well as uh, um, efficiency because you're, you're blocking threads whilst you're locking. And the first time I went, the first, when I first wrote this component uh, in C sharp, it was monstrous. It was uh, nearly a thousand lines of code, and a lot of it is just accidental complexity because I was trying really hard to reduce the number of logs that I'm using and trying to trying to make the code more efficient and performant. But when I rewrote it using F-sharp agent, I was able to reduce it down to about 50 lines of code with no logs. It was wow. a lot easier to understand because I have very few, you know, few lines of code to read and I was able to produce a far greater throughput as well. So again, another massive win there for us uh, by using F-sharp agent. Fantastic. Yeah, there's also other, a couple of places where we are making use of agents, uh, most notably as a sort of state manager for our MNORPG game, which, unlike the other games that we've built, keeps state on a, uh, on a game server to reduce the amount of times so we have to go fetch and uh, the player state and save it to the data store, as well as the serialization costs associated uh, with it. Because of this game, the user state can grow to be very big uh, in the region of megabytes. So you don't want to be reading megabytes of data, deserializing it, make one small change and serialize it back and save it back to the data store. Every call is just not going to uh, scale well. So even when you're using, from experience, even when you're using protocol buffer, we still see serialization as something close to 95% of our CPU usage on our servers. So for, particular, for this uh, uh, Hippie Monsters game, we decided to keep the state on a server whilst the player is still actively playing. And uh, doing so, I was able to observe something like a 500% increase in the number of request counts per second on the same server and a 60% reduction on the average latency. But this approach introduces other challenges and amongst them, the question of how best to ensure that we distribute the load across all of our servers. Uh, 
so that we don't end up with a situation where we can't scale down our deployment because some players are hogging a server so we can't terminate it. The, um, for, for us, we want to be able to scale uh, elastically and that's what we've done for all of our games so that the, the, uh, the size of our deployment is uh, very closely uh, related to the, the current uh, traffic that we are seeing. But we've stayed for servers because you can't terminate a state a server whilst the player is still playing. So there are some challenges there to make sure that we don't uh, over allocate capacities uh, to our deployments. This is where the state manager comes in, where you've got an agent which lazy loads the player state when it's being asked for uh, when the player first comes to the server. And asynchronously blocks until either two things happen: either timeout elapses in which case it attempts to save the player state to the store, to the persistent store, or the player makes another request, in which case it would uh, deep clone the current state, pass it back to the requester, and so that we have uh, still a natural layer of, tra of transactionality there, so we don't have any data when it sort of partially modified the player state being in memory, and uh, even though the core has failed, and then asynchronously blocks again, so if we try to save the state and the player comes back before the state is, uh, persistence finishes, then we just keep on waiting until the player has been idle for enough time to, to, for us to say, okay, that's it, the player is inactive now, we can save the state. And um, uh, because, well, the reason why we need to do this uh, is that like most web traffic, uh, the sort of traffic that we see in our games are very bursty. A player will come in, do loads of things in, for five minutes, and then they will go, either go away, have a cup of tea, come back in half an hour, or we don't see them again that day. So we want to keep the player on state on the server for uh, as close to that amount of time they are doing uh, bursts of activities as possible. Yeah, Jan, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to hold up right there because we have a very important thing we need to do right now. Richard... You know what time it is? Oh, it must be that happy time again. It's that time of the show where we give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection. Today's winner is Scott Harner. Congratulations, Scott. Golf clap for Golf you. Golf clap for Scott Harner. And if uh, Telerik uh, gives away through us every show a DevCraft Complete Collection, this is everything that they do in one box. It's a $2,000 value. If you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, and sign up for the fan club. We have thousands of members now, and uh, every year uh, we give away $5,000 worth of technology. We just gave away last year uh, a PC that uh, Richard put together himself for Rob Corbett. And it's on its way to Rob right now. And Rob wanted a machine that was good for developing and for gaming, right? Yeah, we started out talking about a gaming machine, but he really wanted to get into touch development. So we've gotten him a 27-inch screen that has touch in it and a Kinect for Windows. Right. And probably a lot more machine than he would have bought for himself. More SSDs, more RAM, more everything. Right. And I remember talking to him, he said when he got the email, his roommate thought it was spam and that he shouldn't answer it. <laughs> hey, uh, Jan, we like to ask our guests, you know, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology toys, what uh, what would you buy? Ooh, uh, what would I buy? A uh, top-end developer machine, I guess. A maker bot, maybe? Uh, maybe. Uh, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I've never really thought about what would I buy for it. Uh, so many good gadgets. Yeah. So many <laughs> toys. Yeah, I've seen that the 3D printers are getting a bit cheaper, and I've been watching the 3D scanners, too. They're going down in price also. It, uh, it's uh, not easy to choose. And it's a funny number, too, because mm. $1,000 is easy to spend, even $2,000, but 5000 is a lot. Mm. Yeah. Funny you mentioned 3D printers. Uh, one of my colleagues is waiting for his, uh, his 3D printer. This company, I think they're making uh, 3D printers that can take pallets so that uh, you don't have to provide very expensive materials to make, to, uh, to, to make things. And I think it's only about 300 uh, pounds or something, so about $500 for a 3D printer. Wow. Yeah, that's getting down there. That is getting down there. And you say it can take materials that you give it? Uh, well, not just any material, but um, uh, I think uh, might have plastic or something. I can send you the link. That, that, That's uh, that he's been, uh, he's been uh, talking about it nonstop. He's been waiting for, I think, a couple of months now. 
they're in the stage where they're doing the last, um, I guess, release candidate, uh, sending out the experimental uh, prototypes to uh, the first batch of people that subscribed. So he's on a waiting list. Once, once, he, once, once he gets it, then uh, we can start making models of our characters in our games. Well, you know, uh, to get back to what we were talking to, Jan, we, um, we've, we've talked uh, about F-sharp and about functional programming many times, and I, and I always ask this question because of the, the state of it might change or, you know, people, uh, people's projects change. What red flags should we be looking for in our C-sharp projects to say, you know, this is something we could go functional with? Uh, when you have, say, um, a project where you, def- you see yourself defining lots and lots of uh, types and you don't see yourself uh, you know, ever being able to use them, uh, I would say that's probably a good place to start looking at using F-sharp and F-sharp's uh, discriminant unions instead. So you have lots of types and you don't use them. <laughs> Okay, you, you can't. There are times that uh, with a little reusability. Got it. Got it. In other words, lots of lots and lots of data of different shapes. Shapes, and all you're doing is just use them once and then you know, throw them away. Like I was saying earlier about the tra- data transformation. So each of the transformation, you don't need a separate type. You just need a tuple and, uh, and an easy way to work with a tuple. And also, when you're seeing writing code that doing loads of, uh, like I said, concurrency, uh, high level, high level of concurrency with loads of logs, that's another place to look at using F# for its uh, uh, agents. And also, when you're using things like, um, I guess, any 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 connective any code that connects to SQL Server, uh, SQL databases, and whatnot, you can use the F# uh, type provider. Now they are very cool. Uh, gives you so much intelligent support um, uh, for just about anything you can think of. And this is what we were talking with Don Simon Keith Patachi about: is the the type providers al- al- allow you to type anything. So it, because of the pattern recognition, you can just say, "Here's a stream of data." What is it? Give me yeah. IntelliSense on it. Well, type providers for our libraries, uh, which a lot of people use for statistics and analysis. And I also saw some guys um, allow, making, making it possible for you to use uh, Java frameworks uh, by putting it through uh, ikvm.net and then use type providers on top of that, I think. And also you have the type providers for JSON, for XML, for your, I guess, all your regular uh, string data representations mm. and SQL Server. So anything that has got a schema can be used uh, with type provider to generate the types at compile time. And the schema doesn't have to be defined. It's in a schema inference, isn't it? When you're making a code, uh, when you're building the code, Visual Studio, so if your schema is... Um, it's just defining some Wistow, for instance, for a web service. Uh, that's quite easy for the uh, for F Sharp to just go grab it and then based on the metadata, create a types for you. But sometimes you might have to do a lot of work manually. So for the free based um, type provider, for instance, I think Don Sime or either Don or Keith had to do a lot of work to uh, get it into the, the shape that uh, you, you see at the end of it. But uh, you know, it's still a lot nicer than to have to make have, well make do with uh, magic strings everywhere. Yeah, good stuff. And again, you can go and see uh, the the video that we did with Don Simon Keith Patachi on that uh, on the road trip at tinyurl.com slash dnr don sime s y m e. Yeah, and I want to jump back to what you said earlier about F-sharp as a general purpose language. Now, you're going to go all the way with that, build the whole app, even uh, the graphics, the UI interface? Yeah, you can. Um, um, in fact, um, uh, Phil Trofford, his, uh, his, his company, they make uh, a very, very, uh, very nice uh, trading UI with uh, F-sharp. And, um, there's, there's, and also his tr- uh, Phil spends a lot of his free time just making uh, games in Silverlight in, in the F-sharp. And I know him and a couple of other guys have worked on projects that uh, does cross-language trans- um, translation from F-sharp to uh, JavaScript. There's such a number of different frameworks out there now. Uh, there's one called WebSharper, and then there's uh, Pit and FunScript, which uh, right now does uh, transformation from F-sharp to type provider definitions to, and then to JavaScript. Cool. And I want to jump back a bit to talking about the Facebook integration, because uh, I want to understand, is it, is it F-sharp top to bottom, or is there C-sharp in there as well? Uh, the UI is all done in, at least on the web, the UI is all done in Flash. And right. uh, 
we also we also have um, a quite a couple of guys working on iOS ports for our Flash games, so that we can offer the same experience on the iPad and iPhone devices okay. versus. Uh, on the server side, is uh, right now it's still mostly C sharp, but more and more. Uh, so we are we are integrating F sharp into our code base, uh, but certainly with the slots engine, that was that's pretty much all F sharp. But there are some adapter layers. Uh, okay, before, because uh, before F sharp three, it wasn't uh, the F sharp types aren't that great for uh, XML serialization. So we have a layer there that translates um, that takes the F sharp output to put them in a shape and put them into some C sharp classes that's easier for uh, serialization. But now that we have the uh, CLI thing mutable attribute in F sharp three, uh, we can just start throwing away those code. So you're a recent disciple. You're converting programs over to F sharp. Yeah. Yep. Um, because obviously convincing, well, convincing my manager wasn't uh, quite as, it was, wasn't wasn't difficult at all. I just have to show uh, showing some demo of what I can do and how fast I can do things with F sharp. Right. And again, we don't we didn't have the in-house experience uh, of F sharp, so it's something that we have to in order to get the, the the throughput we need out of our developers. We needed to get the guys up to speed, and that's obviously a slow process because um, everyone have to. I've got a life to live outside of work, and it's uh, probably too much to ask them to all spend the spare time to uh, learn F Sharp or anything that uh, uh, that I find interesting and trying to force into onto our stack. What is this life outside of work you speak of? <laughs> Don't know. <laughs> um, oh yes, are we living to work or working to live? Yeah. Time for one more thing I want to talk about with F Sharp in terms of its use of for internal and external DSLs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Um, so another sweet spot that I find for F Sharp is uh, as the as the language is the in the importation or implementation of internal or external DSLs. So and uh, as I mentioned earlier, we use Amazon Web Services very heavily. And DynamoDB is one of the database solutions that Amazon provides. And unlike many of its other services, DynamoDB does not scale dynamically based on load, but instead you tell Amazon how many reads and writes per second do you need to support for a table. Right. And Amazon go ahead and provision enough resources to handle that throughput and you pay for the amount of resources reserved on a pay-as-you-go basis. When you need to scale up or down, you just change the throughput settings, uh, wait briefly for the changes to take effect on the fly, which usually takes maybe a maximum of a couple of minutes. And this takes away all the administrative costs associated with traditional database systems. And I've heard of an advertising company who does close to no traffic all year round, except for the four hours of uh, during Super Bowl, during which they're doing something in the region of 4 million database ops a second. Wow. Now, cost of maintaining uh, infrastructure that can support that kind of peak load, it would be astronomical. But this guy has meant to get away with it uh, by spending a few thousand dollars just for that campaign because of, uh, thanks to uh, DynamoDB's uh, pretty extreme elasticity. Uh, but DynamoDB is ultimately a key value store and a good fit if uh, the majority of your uh, use case is around getting and setting a value by key. Although it does support a limited uh, queryability, there is no building query language for you to work with, which often makes uh, queries very difficult to do, which is perhaps by design. Uh, but using a library called fparsec, uh, which is a combinator-based uh, parser library for F-sharp, I was able to build a SQL-like external DSL for DynamoDB, which accepts a uh, query string that looks like SQL, but a base of rules of DynamoDB. And I did that over a weekend. And there are really two sets of syntax. It's one for each type of queries that is supported by DynamoDB. And each of the parsers is implemented in under 100 lines of code. So that's another area where f -sharp is great for uh, in implementing DSLs. So Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread. But now, of course, it's Component1Spread.net. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.net and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. 
Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Component One. Smarter components for smarter developers. You know, I was spending a little time at your blog, theburningmonk.com, which is great, by the way. I love that. And uh, it just seems to me you are so prolific with sharing your knowledge. Um, So a big thank you to you for all the F-sharp developers out there looking to do stuff. Uh, I would almost go to uh, so far as to say you may be the Scott Hanselman of F-sharp when it comes to blogging. That's that's pretty Uh, amazing. Thank you very much uh, for that compliment. Uh, but I have to say, you should uh, check out um, Phil Trofford and certain Thomas Petrachek's uh, uh, blogs. Those guys are the real experts in F-Sharp. I'm just a guy who uses it. All right. Well, we'll, we'll include those links on, on the webpage as well. Um, one of the things that you talked about is the uh, Amazon Simple Workflow, which um, you know people may or may not have heard about. Can you tell us about that and your experience with it? Sure. So Amazon Simple Workflow is a relatively new service that Amazon is providing. Um, what it does is uh, it takes away some of the orchestration and state management that's required for typical workflows. If Say if you've got a business model, a business process, uh, for instance, for Amazon, you'd be someone making an order and uh, you check the credit card details, you charge the credit card, you, you check the stock, you uh, provision the stock, you ship it. All of those are steps of a well-defined business workflow. Now, uh, to implement the workflow, you need to keep track of the state of the workflow at each, uh, each step. And Simple Workflow is a service that sort of manages that sort of things for you um, in, and gives you a task-based programming model. So there are two types of tasks that Amazon can, uh, a Simple Workflow can give you, either a decision task and an activity task. The activity task is the task for you to actually do something. So in the step of, say, charging end users' uh, credit card, you'll be actually going to talk to PayPal or your credit card provider to actually make a transition. The decision task is whenever the state of the workflow changes. Okay, so the component that makes this, uh, these decisions is called a decider. And ultimately, the workflow is, that is a sequence of activities is implied by the decider logic. And at no point do you actually work with the service itself and feel like you're actually modeling a workflow. So what I did was uh, I wrote a simple, uh, um, quite a simple library that sits on top of the standard .NET SDK for working with Amazon uh, services uh, that allows you to model a workflow uh, in a more with a nat- with a, I guess a natural and intuitive uh, API. And with F# you can you can define the customs operators that's not supported by uh, C# for instance plus uh, plus greater than and you this, uh, this custom operator to string together uh, definitions for activities and uh, decisions that you want to make, and you don't have to write a lot of the boilerplate code that's usually involved with uh, working with simple workflow. And uh, also with uh, uh, simple workflow, when you've got a long-running activity, for instance, you need to uh, every now and then uh, submit a heartbeat and uh, have to, if you want to pass data from one activity to the next, that's another process that you have to write manually. And the way uh, the SDK is structured, it means that every time you have a different workflow, you have to write a different decider. And a lot of that code in the deciders would be duplicated. It would be a case of looking at the history of what's happened so far. If the last his- last event that occurred was uh, a charge credit card, then the next activity should be um, check stock, for instance. All of these can be modeled with this library by just saying, okay, I've got workflow. Here's a name. Here's a version number. And then the, the first activity would be to check credit card details. Next activity, charge credit card. Next activity to uh, check stock. Next activity to ship the item to the user. And you don't have to write any of the boilerplate code in terms of polling a uh, simple workflow for tasks that to perform. Right. And uh, as, as I said before, your your blog is really great with lots of excellent graphics and stuff to uh, help illustrate how this stuff works. Do you find that um, using some kind of workflow engine is really crucial when you're when you're writing this kind of application? It certainly makes life a lot easier because um, one of the things that's going to be difficult as you as you work with uh, large scale um, application is always going to be 
well, database is always going to be a bottleneck and simple workflow so takes care of the state management side of things for you and making sure that tasks are dispatched in a timely and reliable manner. So that sort of complexity and infrastructure is taken out of your hands. So it means that you should be focusing on just implementing the logic. The core SDK doesn't give you that, uh, that ability to just uh, to just forget about boilerplate code and work on the logic. But hopefully with this uh, small library, uh, you should be able to do that easily enough. And as for us, uh, right now, we are using it to orchestrate uh, our whole analytics pipeline, which ultimately is kind of feels more like um, a map reduce step, if you like, as well. We're using a platform from uh, provided by Google called uh, BigQuery. And uh, it's, it's quite it's a really impressive uh, technology. If you, if you haven't checked it out, it allows you to um, analyze massive massive amount of data uh, using a SQL-like syntax, but against CSV files. So, so imagine you have a, a, a map reduce workflow, well, map reduce job where the developer has to write the actual map reduce logic. But instead, with a big query, you can just teach an analyst uh, how to write simple SQL, and then just let them write any uh, a SQL query against the data, let BigQuery uh, handle the map reducer, translating the SQL into map reduce task that goes away and analyze the data in batches. And you can analyze uh, you know, hundreds of gigs of data in seconds and get some results back. You can even have that results go uh, get pushed straight into um, Google spreadsheets. Mm -hmm. it, seems like, it seems like your uh, simple workflow extensions are kind of like seems like they should have been there have you gotten any good feedback from uh net developers about it uh, not yet uh, i suspect not a lot of people are using simple workflow from uh the .NET side of things yeah. which is why um with the java sdk there's actually a framework already which allows you to model workflows uh, with a more old approach which again um, i find that there's a lot of boilerplate just you know Type definitions everywhere, uh, loads, loads of uh, unnecessary work you have to do just to get to what you want to do, which is to write individual logic for individual steps. Yeah. But on a, uh, even that framework is missing from the .NET SDK. So I suspect it being a relatively young service, uh, not a lot of people have a, has, uh, has adopted it. And certainly a very few, not a lot of people from .NET has, uh, are using it. Until now. <laughs> well, more people are going to find out about it, that's for sure. Are you doing the MapReduce across a bunch of instances in the cloud, or is it your own machines? It's all in the cloud. Uh, we don't run any hardware in-house. Right. Um, that's one of the things that we decided very, very early on when we started the uh, work at the games is, is that uh, we want to embrace the cloud. We don't want to... Uh, we don't want to raise this certainly at our still at our scale with we have the cost or this cost saving from not having system admins and not having to pay for heating hardware and whatnot right it would be far greater than the the cost saving of having the machines uh, in house and also because our games can go from no traffic to uh, million users you know if you're lucky within a month if we spend a lot right. of money on our the, the task of provisioning those hardware is not something that you can do easily. And also, if a game becomes uh, unpopular or doesn't, doesn't hit home, if you like, uh, what do you do with those hardware? Do you just leave them lying around and still burning money in your uh, burning, burning holes in your pocket? Uh, with, with the cloud, you have the, uh, the elastic uh, capabilities of um, just you know, scaling up and down based on what you actually need. And that's actually quite interesting. Um, difference between different cloud providers as well. With Amazon, as obviously, is infrastructure as service, so you're still working very much with uh, virtual machines, uh, sure. having to bring them for them to be initialized and load your code and whatnot. Uh, with uh, Google App Engine, however, you have a multi-tenancy servers and you're working directly against the SDK, so that's sort of scaling up and down is sort of hidden away from you. Right. And uh, the way works if a request comes in for your application it first stays in the queue if you uh, and then the first server that becomes available uh, you will handle your request if the requests are staying in the queue for longer than a certain threshold then more servers will load your code and start handling requests for you so in cases where you have very extreme bursts so you have say suppose a, a dashboard application that does nothing and then all of a sudden someone releases some uh, code and broke production on start or start uh, seeing loads of errors, this guy will go from zero traffic to 
20,000 requests a second. Uh, things like this is, uh, is, is, is not as suitable for Amazon Web Services because you have to wait for servers to get uh, bring up. That takes, usually takes a couple of minutes and then load your code and whatnot uh, so you don't get instant um, uh, uh, scaling up that you do with App Engine. And that's one of the things that I find with Windows uh, um, Azure. At least the last time I looked at it, my information could be out of date. That you kind of get, uh, kind of in the middle of the two. That you you get the dynamic scaling, but you're still constrained by the so the, the the ability to bring servers up quickly. Uh, but you're sort of hit, you're not as acutely aware that you're working with uh, virtual machines. And that's why we've uh, we made the choice to, uh, to work with uh, Amazon Web Services and Google App Engine. And until the, uh, up to now, we still haven't seen enough reason to uh, to adopt Windows Azure as well. And also, Windows Azure doesn't provide a badass database solution. At uh, least one that's uh, that can handle the sort of scale that we want. And Amazon, both Amazon and um, Google App Engine, has got something that is more suitable for us. So, Jan, what are you working on now? What's next for you? Uh, right now, we, have, we are just finishing off uh, Here Be Monsters. Um, we are super excited. Uh, this game is hopefully it will do really well for us. And we are going to do a big push in the next month or so. Now we just... Um, so to give you a bit background about the game, it's a mid-core MMORPG uh, targeted at players who has been playing social games for a while and getting a bit tired of the, the very simple click-and-play mechanism and they wanted a bit more gameplay, hence the term mid-core. That's uh, becoming more and more um, commonplace now amongst the social game developers. It's based on the real world, so you have a map with uh, places uh, like London or New York, and there are towns uh, that you, which are the center hubs where you can go and, and talk to NPCs who give you a quest and to do X, Y, Z. You can go to different spots in the world, you can, you can fish, and you can uh, forage a bush to find some blackberries, and you have a homestead as well to tend to as well, so similar to your farm view type of games. Unlike uh, games like FarmView, where you are growing stuff and for the sake of growing them and then selling them just so they can buy more stuff to, to grow, the game, the things you find around the world, as well as the things that you grow at your homestead, you can combine them in the workshops to make other things, you know, sort of like alchemy or crafting uh, type of way. And there are monsters in the world that are available in different regions. Uh, the fishes are available in different regions based on you know, real-world uh, um, fish. And um, you, can, you can build traps to catch monsters. And you can, uh, some monsters have prefer a preference for a certain type of bait. <laughs> for instance, you can have a cow. You take the cow, put it into your workshop, grind him into steak, and you find some false glove, which is a flower that's found around the UK. You, you cook the two together at your... Uh, campfire to get the false glove uh, beef, which is, uh, which is a preferred bait for this monster in south part of Asia called the vegetable lamb. And then you can put in your bait, wait for the bait uh, for the monster to come, catch it. <laughs> and there's, uh, there's loads of other things you can do in the game. <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, so it's doing really well for, uh, based on the small samples of players that we've had so far um, the last two months that since the game's been out in sort of like a close in a sort of beta uh, we've had players who spend 30 days of solid gameplay time so that's nearly half their time half their, their time in the last two months just playing the game and we have we have had some really good feedbacks from the players and they love it and the players are going through our quests so quickly now that we have so that we have to keep coming out with new content new quests for people to do and uh, yeah it's uh, it's it's, uh, it's it's looking really good very uh, positive excellent well Jan thank you so much for joining us today it's been great talking to you and congratulations on your success all right, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, 
and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft Development Technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC Yes, I'm a, a